The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, sister. Oh, wait, I've got a bit. No, we'll say, no, wait, it's not a bit. Sorry, I thought I had a bit. But Did I, you have a bit? But uh, no. Tēnā koutou katoa, this is Gone By Lunchtime. My name is Toby Manhire. Here's Annabelle Lee Mather. Kia ora. Kia ora. Here's Ben Thomas. Kia ora. Morena. Helping us today is Tina Tiller. Lovely to have you back there lighting the room up. Thank you also to spin-off members. Um, is there anyone else we want to thank? No no thanks to Tax Cinder. No, oh. he- no help for small town Main Street mum and dad PR firms. <laughs> In this year's budget, <laughs> the Kiwi, the Kiwi battlers. Another bad budget for the propagandists of the political lobbying and PR industry. Yeah, when 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 do we get a good one? The massive inequity you guys face say, in your industry. So uh, unfair. Take a moment, everybody, to to think about that and reflect on what you've done. What have you done for the PR industry, listener? Have you? You commit, committed any indiscretions recently? <laughs> have, you, have you created a new government department? <laughs> Just think of ways you could help out. Have you helped to foment a crisis that needs solving? Yeah. A reputational crisis, I mean. Is there something you need to hide? <laughs> do people come to you sometimes? Do you ever do that sort of stuff? Like if, I, if, if there's some terrible hmm. um, Annabelle exposes me, uh, for all the terrible stuff I've done, can I come to you and say, Ben, help me out? How do I deal with this? Is that, is that, is that something you ha- is on your rack of goods? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not something I've I've done a lot of right. recently. Okay. Um, but you sort of, yeah. I mean, obviously, you just give people advice. Hmm. You know, honesty hmm. is usually the best policy. But don't, not, in your, not in your own words. You're an idiot amateur. Do you slip into people's together? Under the guiding hand of a professional, right? You know, don't yeah. get carried away. Yeah, like well, you just you just send out the email. That's right. Yeah, but do you slip into people's DMs? Like if you see them getting smashed on Twitter? Yeah, yeah, that's like, right. <laughs> just, <laughs> sort of like DM slides to, the, to like you know, and you're like, wow, you seem to be going through a really tough time. My rates are as follows: BNTPR. <laughs> the budget was on Thursday. And 
It was another recent times we've had a lot of kind of quite interesting 1991 retro. It's like a great big television episode harking back to 1991 because we had all the fair pay agreement stuff, the Jim Bolger loop. And in presenting the budget, Grant Robertson invoked 1991 and the infamous mother of all budgets. Uh, and he didn't call it this, but he should have called it, therefore, the matricide budget. <laughs> the what? The matricide, but, you know, like, not, like, kill your mother budget. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, or, like, because it also <laughs> included $700 million for rail upgrades, the throw mama from the train mm. budget. Mm. Or maybe we should just... That movie? I do, that's yeah. A movie. If you Danny remember DeVito? the budget, Danny you remember DeVito. that movie. They're the same era. In fact, that's what Ruth Richardson was thinking of. In fact, she was watching that <laughs> film on VHS as she, you know, jotted down all the plans to uh, impoverish the country. Maybe we should just change the name of that budget to the Mother Effa budget. Okay. Seems yeah. like a very apt name for it now. Grant Robertson, the Minister of Finance, said that this budget would be righting the wrongs of the, those 1991 decisions, which saw benefits slashed dramatically. Uh, and, you know, it was quite startling. Not, I didn't see anyone really pick uh, the booster benefits that were announced on Budget Day. 20 bucks a week as of July, I think, and then beyond that, anywhere between sort of 40-something and 55 for, for some beneficiaries in the years to come, costing $3.3 billion. And it's like Annabelle for a long time since 1991. It's almost been sort of taboo to increase benefits because there has been an accepted wisdom that middle New Zealand doesn't like benefits. And so while... Get, get a real job, like sending out press releases about sexual harasses. Mm. While, um, while you might, do, you know, things like working for families and all sorts of schemes and bolt-ons and things, they were, but, but leave, that, leave, that, leave, leave the benefit rates have, have, have for the most part, they were increased, for example, under the COVID budget a little, most, for the most part, been left untouched. And yet the advice from the welfare... Expert advisory group and a lot of other expert advice was that if you really want to deal with, for example, child poverty, mm. you need to increase base benefits. That's what. Need. And now, not everything in the welfare um, advisory group was done, but this was a it was a major decision. It was a step in the right direction, but um, but obviously there's still disappointment. Um, because it doesn't increase it enough. And those recommendations came out a few years ago now, so the increases being talked about, you know, if you live in Auckland, wouldn't even rent you a letterbox here hmm. for a week. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, the government's to, to be applauded for um, for for increasing benefits, but again... Um, $20, $30, $50 doesn't go very far in a, in a shopping trolley nowadays. Were you surprised, Ben? I was picking probably around $30. Um, I, my expectation was that they would go a little further than those two benefit bumps that both the previous national government and 
the Labour government and, and the Labour New Zealand First Coalition did last term, which was in total about $45. Um, so we've seen since, I think, was it 2016 that um, Key and English uh, raised benefits? It's We've seen little incremental increases, which was where that sort of taboo was broken, that you just don't raise benefits, mm. you know, except by CPI or now wage inflation. Yeah. Um, so I was expecting 30, 50. That's a lot. 50 per adult. You know, it's 100 bucks for a couple. So $110 for, for a couple of these of next year. Um, it's the equivalent for somebody on the average salary of about $82,000 of getting a 3% tax cut. On their, on their effective tax rate. It's like it's like for any income earner having the first $20,000 of income tax-free. So, it, you know, it's, it is significant in terms of that narrow band of sort of, um, you know, personal hip-pocket increases that parties campaign on, like, you know, for, for tax cuts or working for families. You know, it's a significant boost. It's probably not quite as significant, you know, as Annabelle said, as Robertson is making out. And, you know, Robertson is a guy who is very good at political PR. And so he's tied this back, you know, to this long, this, this huge bogeyman in Labour and left-wing circles, which is the mother of all budgets. And he's he's providing a sort of sense of narrative satisfaction mm. <laughs> for, for this government mm. kind of, you know, after the failures to transform and deliver in that first term, he's really trying to say, "Look, you know, this is this is Labour. We're back. We've we've made amends for the past." I think it was a it's been a while since Labour probably put uh, the Roger Douglas reforms to bed in terms of its own legacy, but in terms of addressing that 90s Yes, it was legacy. interesting that he was focused mainly, mainly on the national government. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> curious. <laughs> the, the one that came before, which, if I recall correctly, was a Labour government. The first act to government um, of New <laughs> yeah, Zealand. That's right. Um, but... You know, I mean, and, and I look, you know, from a PR perspective, I have a bit of sympathy for them. That, ben Thomas PR. You know, they, they do PR. deliver what is, you know, in the historical context of the last 30 years, a big increase to benefits. And people are like, well, it's a good start. You know, <laughs> you're like, come on, let, let Grant Robertson just let him be celebrated and fated for one night for, you know, driving a stake through the heart of Richard and Richardsonism. Yeah, it, I mean, I think it, it is difficult for us to to evaluate budgets now because post COVID, just the the magnitude of numbers that we're dealing with is so unreal compared mm. to the last mm. thirty years of careful fiscal restraint, also ushered mm. in by Ruth Richardson, um, and. You know, there was, you know, the $3.8 billion housing accelerator fund, which mm. the government sort of re-announced with a big splash in the budget. Because when they announced it in March, nobody even noticed. Yep. You know, 3.8 billion, that's huge expense Between friends. <laughs> but there is that. But, but, I think that's why there's a little bit of disappointment, though, because during COVID we saw the establishment of a two-tier benefit system where the government could afford to be more generous to people who lost their jobs through COVID. And so, you know, along with the recommendations of the working group, there wasn't, you know, there's an expectation that there will be a more generous approach to, to beneficiaries, particularly if we're serious about lifting kids out of child poverty. And that, that so, so $50, obviously it's better than what has, you know, what there's been in the past. But... Um, but still not far enough. And I think David Seymour, you know, harking back to that act thing, is he he was the only person I think who really who raised 
what was actually Richardson's major ideological argument for lower benefits, which was that having, you know, quote unquote, high benefit rates um, disincentivizes people returning to work. And figures out recently show, uh, I think I saw, um, we now have hundred just under 120,000 people who have been on the job seeker benefit f- or a main benefit for more than a year. Um, and that's up about 100% on this time on just before COVID. And it's actually, it's long-term unemployment that really sort of digs into that kind of poverty trap, you know, whether you raise benefits, mm. $50, $100, whatever. It's, you know, there is still a, a significant margin between work and and, and being on a benefit. Um, and, and that used to be the argument of the sort of you yes. know, neoliberals was if you, if you disincentivize finding a job, people will get stuck in this poverty trap. Well, that's a that's a kind of posh way of saying the old they're they're they're, they're sitting on their asses watching TV. That's that, yeah. that's the the other version of that rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think Seymour, you know, refined it down. So he said, "Look, in Auckland, yeah, obviously that's not going to do much. You're you're not even keeping up with rent. If you're in one of the more far flung rural communities, jobs are harder to come by." Um, you know, fifty dollars can go a long way, and you know. That's good in the sense that, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be in as much poverty anymore. Um, but, you know, is there a disincentive effect? And it was interesting that only ACT, you know, which is, you know, on the what 90th percentile of right-wing views in New Zealand, right. even raised that issue. Right. It, it also ignores the fact that actually to, to, it's harder to get a job when you're really, really poor. Because to get a job, it helps if you've got, like, access to the internet so you can look for jobs, that you've got a working car so you can, you know, go go to job interviews and get to your jobs, that you're earning enough to be able to put your kid in childcare. And also that um, whether a a person doesn't want to work or not, uh, um, and and I believe that most people, if given the opportunity, do want to work, it's not their kid's fault. And kids shouldn't be punished for the actions of their mm. of their parents. Mm. And that was, in a way, that 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 uh, Richardson argument was jettisoned by John Key to some extent when he talked about the underclass when he came in. That was not about a kind of we need to mm. we need to. Yeah. It's, it wasn't a, a stick over carrot argument that he was making. No, no, hundred percent. But I, I think that and and look, you know, it's not like the government is asleep at the wheel here. You know, there's a lot in the budget about creating jobs, mm. a lot about skills training, which is incredibly important. The, the issue is is going to be, you know, can they create the jobs? Can they get the money out the door? Can they get these projects going? Um, because a lot of their job creation is focused on government projects, yeah. you know, yeah. stimulus through infrastructure rather than what Judith Collins was suggesting, which is, you know, cutting cutting the costs for business so that they can sort of go off and do their own thing. Um, you know, and we saw that, you know, $3.8 billion for housing again. Well, there was $2 billion for KiwiBuild and it didn't get us much. Now there's $350 million for iwi housing, which mm. is fantastic yeah, yeah, if it achieves exciting. anything. And and I, I'm actually more hopeful for that because I think mm. iwi are better partners than the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development are. Mm. Um, and I think that if, if iwi can get uh, support for the infrastructure. You know, they have land, they have people. What they need is skills and capacity training, and they need infrastructure. Um, and then they can actually get about doing their own plans that don't rely on, you know, go- government central planning or guidance. Mm. The other thing, of course, when you put money into 
the pockets of the most hard up in the country, the money gets spent, whether it's spent on food, on raincoats, on it gets spent, the money goes back into the economy. So it isn't, and, and Kurt Coke from Business New Zealand said the benefit rises could have been a bit more for right, that well, reason. There you, you go. Know, you mentioned a moment ago, Annabelle, the two-tier unemployment uh, rate Well, we have good news for you. <laughs> um, and one of the, one of the it, was, it was really a plan outlined in the budget, which is, you know, not absolutely usual, but interesting for social unemployment insurance. And this idea, and it's the CTU and Business NZ are meant to be involved in the design of this new scheme. You, you know, but there are, there's, there are Nordic models. Canada has one. Various other parts of the world have them. The idea is there would be a levy uh, charged to business who, in a sort of slightly ACC-ish way, and then if you fall out of work, you have that kind of that safety net that's quite a lot higher than the other safety net. Do you think that is a sensible way forward? I have real concerns about it because I think what we can see already from ACC is that um, there's a they do everything they can to not support people and there's massive inequity in the system. So I worry that setting up another system that's kind of loosely based on that philosophy is, is going to cause more hardship and what's wrong with the safety system that we already have just provision it properly yeah i think yeah yeah well the argument is it's it's an, it's, it's not enough for those things you were talking about which is so the rationale for the employment and unemployment insurance is that people's lives don't become unduly disrupted um, in between work, so you know, as, as so you don't fall into a spiral of missing bills. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because things that you know, the poorer you get, yeah. the harder things get. Yeah. You know, if you miss your mortgage payments, say, you know, then you've got to find more homes. That makes job seeking harder. You know, you disrupt your kids from school. That kind of thing. So, I mean, it it, it is a sop to middle class people, m- most broadly, I think. But there is... Uh, but it'll Max- be funded by, by working class people. Well, it'll, and they'll it'll, miss it'll, out on the benefits of it, which is what we see already with ACC. Well, I, I think it'll be funded by everyone. I think there'll probably be a lot of cross-subsidisation, and just like there is with ACC, just like there is with any insurance scheme, because most people aren't unemployed. You know, it, it's much rarer, you know, in people's working lifetimes. You know, most, most people don't lose their jobs and and most people are only unemployed for a short period of time you know it is only there is only a core of about sort of two percent say that are long-term unemployed at any given time now we're up to about three four percent but it it would well no we shouldn't say unemployed because being on the job seeker doesn't mean you're unemployed it just might mean you're working fewer hours but um Apparent, apparently, and I'm no expert on this, um, you know, like the Nordic com- countries have this, it actually increases support for, it tends to increase support for higher uh, benefit levels because, you know, the middle classes feel like they're getting out of it as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think there's I think there's something to that. That's, that's an old sort of precept of New Zealand's welfare state and is why, you know, even beneficiaries nominally pay tax which is that everyone's paying in and everyone's getting out. Um, so everyone feels these sort of citizenship rights or whatever. Um, 
and and there is this idea because I, I I don't think that most of the middle classes did feel pl- close enough to precarity last year for it to really affect their long term views about welfare. I think the reason that welfare increases were possible in this budget is because of how how well off the middle classes felt because of soaring house prices because they've saved money from their Bali trips during lockdown um, and they've seen what's happening in the rest of the world and so com- comparatively they feel very good in the budget it says you know house price inflation will slow to 1% in the next year. And that means, I think, next year you would not be able to get away with an announcement like this. Um, hey, Annabelle. Toby. You're, um, as the producer of the new Mike Hosking show, the new, the new, the, what's taken over the Mike Hosking show mm. is the home of regular interviews with the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. I believe you had on the hui last night with Mahi Hosking. Mm. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, tell me about that. Mike Forbes. Um, we uh, Mahi covered a story last week about um, a whānau whose 13-year-old son suffers with cystic fibrosis. Oh, yeah. And obviously they want to access Trikafta, which is the new wonder drug that's massively enhancing the life of cystic fibrosis sufferers and extending their... their um, their lives, which I think most pass away around 37. Um, and they marched to Parliament with um, Patients' Voices, um, which is led by Michael Mulho- uh, Malcolm Mulholland, um, asking for um, Trikafta to be included in the list of um, medicines subsidised by Pharmac. I think it costs around 400000 a year. For, for someone to take track after and they were hoping obviously that there'd be a massive funding boost for for Pharmac um, and um, obviously they were disappointed with the announcement that only 200 million extra um, has been given to Pharmac because the way Pharmac works you, you know they have a list of medicines and to you know they have to fund whatever's at the top of the list first, and at the moment, Trikafta isn't even on the list. Mm. So that two hundred million will be spent on on other stuff, and um, and those kids won't even get a look in. So, so, so that's what um, so you guys that's what the, the prime minister was talking about. Because in she, a way, the principle is that the the politicians shouldn't be speaking to the specific examples, right? Like that's they, that's devolved to Farmac. In terms of making those particular well, that, that's what she said is that you know Pharmac should never be politically um, influenced, mm. and that it has to have its own mandamotu um, haki. But I think at a pragmatic level, that's not really how it works. I think if the government cops enough heat about something, and we've seen it with um, with other drugs in the past, the breast cancer, Herceptin, yeah, so that was in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and. My understanding is that announcement, which was made by a junior MP during the campaign, was actually a mistake. You know, they they put out a promise that they would independently fund Herceptin, you know, outside of Pharmac. Mm. It wasn't cleared through anyone. The MP just put it out. And then then everyone freaked out, but then they saw that it really helped in polling. (laughs) So they had to adopt it as policy. Mm. Um, But it, it is a bad way to run because, you know, and you see this in PR circles, all New Zealand branches of drug companies do is pay for media campaigns about people who need their very expensive drugs. 
Like that's essentially the entire role of of their branch offices in New Zealand. Hey, hit me up, guys, because no one's <laughs> no one's come offering us any money, and we've done we've done a few um, cystic fibrosis um, stories now. But one of the comments made by the Andrew Beecroft is that New, it, it could be argued that New Zealand was in breach of the UN's is it declaration on children's rights because uh, children are supposed to be prioritised over other groups and at the moment they're not, in terms of pharmac, that's that's not the case. Hmm. The, the, the other thing with Herceptin and, and why these decisions shouldn't be political is that apparently a Herceptin, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but there was an eight-week course or a 14-week course, obviously 14-week course is about twice as expensive all of the evidence showed that the eight-week course was as, if not more, effective than the 14-week course. But because, and, and I think the eight weeks was what Labour went into the election on, but the 14-week course polled much higher. And so that ended up being funded. And this is why you shouldn't have political decisions on drugs, uh, drug funding in New Zealand. But the reality is, is that Pharmac is funded by the government, so it is sort of innately political in a sense and the argument is is that there should be much much more funding for Pharmac and that's again a political decision I'd, I'd just like to I'd just like to um, uh, intercede here and point out that Ben Thomas is not a medical professional and please don't take his advice on uh, medicines you use or don't use he is however a doctor of public uh, relations I am and, an epidemiologist uh, hmm. I'm uh, 800 Ben Thomas, PR. Um, we need to race through the last bits here because the, um, you people, important people have important things to do. Very quickly, though. Oh, just uh, other stuff oh. in the budget. Yes. Uh, that caught my attention. Yes. Um, yeah. Any other stuff in the budget that caught your attention, so Ben? I thought the uh, $50 billion to set up a separate Maori state. That was something that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't largely covered. I think that was in the DIA budget. Um $400,000 in the Māori development, in Vote Māori development, chillingly just titled Utu. Uh, <laughs> could, could have used a bit more explication mm -hmm. by the government. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, $30,000 to mail a copy of the new bilingual constitution to every home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but apart from that, uh, <laughs> not much to see. Really. Um uh, the the other announcement that came last week was an immigration reset once in a generation. Tum to tum to tum tum tum. Chris Farfoy uh, had a cold or something, I think. So Stuart Nash read out his speech. It was uh, reasonably, how to put it, reasonably ambiguous, nebulous, amorphous. Confusing. There wasn't a lot of specificity in it, but the broad thrust of it was more of the wealthy, skilled. Migrants and less of the low-skilled migrants, and uh, um, who's on the phone? Oh, eight hundred. Ben Thomas, PR. So that was me. That was my doctor's appointment from last week. Oh, yeah. Did you not make the appointment? Or oh no, I did. Right. How'd it go? Good. Good. Yeah. Good. It would be quite cool if you, like, still if it was your, the doctor uh, with some results, some test yeah. results, that would be a really good, a really good yeah. plot point. It's just like <laughs> it's positive. A nice bit nice like, of That's the cliffhanger <laughs> ending yeah. of the podcast. Beautiful. Uh, what did you make of all that, Annabelle Lee Matha? It, um, I don't know, it sort of slipped by a bit. It felt like there was a lot of discussion about migration in terms of productivity and uh 
almost like they're kind of talking about shipping containers or <laughs> you know <laughs> like lines that were coming in and out of out of the warehouse rather than a, li- a line like coming a line coming out of Kmart more like oh, a sneaking well, line know, yeah, well, <laughs> zigzagging it, well, well yes right like there is quite an important social and cultural thing uh, related to immigration too for for my money it's makes the place a much better to have a re- not just fancy wealthy migrants but low school migrants I don't, and I, I, I didn't see and maybe I missed it but I don't think there was anything in the speech about the refugee quota which I think remains the same I don't know To all politicians out there mm. if you keep saying a once in a lifetime a, a once in a generation yep. I'm actually gonna opportunity about everything generation. it starts to lose its potency yes, it as it's a phrase point. It's crying, crying wolf can I ju- can I just encourage everyone? Mm. Let's let's all save that one for very special occasions, yep. very very rare okay. events, not just mm-hmm. any old policy that mm-hmm. you're rolling out. Once in a life, once in a generation opportunity to have lunch on a Thursday at Bellamy's. It's not <laughs> like no. just yep. dial it down a couple of clicks yep. and save it for the really big mm-hmm. stuff. Um, in terms of a of a immigration reset. My view is that you actually can't have an immigration, you know, as the Treaty of Waitangi is the original immigration document in New Zealand, you really can't have an immigration reset without the input of tangata whenua. And it's not really clear in this policy how tangata whenua have worked in partnership to develop whatever the new policy is. Um, New Zealand has a horrible track record of of immigration practices and policies. Exhibit one would be colonisation. Um, exhibit two would be um, um, the dawn raids, where we took in a whole lot of cheap labour from the Pacific when it suited us and then turned around and booted them all out when we didn't want them anymore. Um, you know... Recent events, you know, the the um, the migrants that got stuck here during COVID, who weren't eligible for any sort of government support, but couldn't return home either. You know, the awful situation some of those REC workers find themselves in. So I think, you know, this is actually a missed opportunity for us to have a a real meaningful. Wānanga and discussion about New Zealand's immigration policy and the trouble with that is that you know it gets politicised and it gets used as a racist soapbox for people to whip up xenophobia about and so you know I think something like a royal commission of inquiry where people get to come in and there's a there's a layer of like officiality and protection for, you know, people like refugees who have often come from really traumatic situations and who are frightened of authority and all of that sort of stuff, who, you know, are at risk because you might be allowed in with one government and then the next government wants to boot you out sort of thing. If we had a Royal Commission of Inquiry, where refugees, where tangata whenua, where businesses could all come and have a real wānanga and discussion about immigration, that would be a great thing. But from 
but from what's been put forward so far, it's hard to, like, if you were to ask most Māori, I think most Māori would say that they would rather have 300 refugees than 300 rich people come to Aotearoa. Well, this is the issue, right, is it sounds good, and we've been saying for years we need more high-quality migrants who will bring investment. If you think about it, the you know, the the, the only... <laughs> The only long-term migrant under those sort of rich investor categories that I can think of who's actually created a lot of jobs here is Kim.com, mm. right? It, it's <laughs> Serious, eh? Yeah. I mean, you know, like for the judicial, <laughs> judicial economy. Le- well, no, even leaving aside all of those other things, you know, that's a guy who spends money in a sure. country, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of the people that we get under those investor classes, it's, you know, it's re- it's ridiculous stuff. Like, you know, you can put your, th- you can buy th- three years worth of government bonds worth $5 million and that's you and investing in the economy. Mm. I mean, the problem New Zealand has is not that it can't sell bonds to people. Um, and, and the idea is, you know, it's it's based on trickle-down, right? It's these people will spend their money in the economy. Peter Thiel is never here and so never spends money in the economy. Um, what and, about and, that and, Russian oligarch that brought Waiweta and said he was going to invest and, you know, renovate it and now it's just like a dump? Hmm. Yeah, and, and, and then we talk about these low-value migrants who are wiping our great-grandparents' butts and doing all the stuff that none of us want to do. Um, and, and you know, you can't, you know, and we say they're low value, but I think if the pandemic showed anything, it's that these, it's the, the so-called low value workers and the essential workers are very, very similar. Um, and that, you know, working not in filth that doesn't just sort of happen. And, and we, we, st- we don't even have the settings right now. You know, they say that they're letting in too many low-value um, migrants. Um, you know, one of the uh, one, one uh, branch of an Indian restaurant in Wellington has closed down while the other branches continue because Imbi has told them that they should hire local Indian chefs, not Indian chefs. Which you know that's that's insane, right? I mean, I could I could head over there with you know my box of patak's curry mm. powder or something and give it my best go, mm. but you know that's actually a skill. Yeah. <laughs> it's not you know. It's not I PR. think I think it. I, I <laughs> yeah. think it's true. It's, it's not it's not a super valuable skill like PR, but it's still highly skilled. I think it's true that you know our immigration settings has created a low-wage society. But that's not because of the immigrants. That's because the government has let them be exploited by businesses that want to pay less than the minimum wage. Yeah, and I think that if it was just about immigration... um, you know, then we would see what we'd see is something like the United States, where you have very, very low wage jobs and you have very, very high paid jobs. But we don't have very, very high paid jobs in New Zealand, not compared with you know our peers in Australia or, or similar. Um, is it Karen McNamara? Kate McNamara in the Herald wrote a great piece where she said, you know, the government was saying that our five percent of workers on temporary uh, visas is is incredibly high in the OECD. But she pointed out, you know, two thirds of the OECD is in the EU where they have essentially unrestricted movement and visa free entry and and their migrant worker figures aren't any, you know, aren't any lower than ours. Let's, uh, before we skip to the end, talk about David Seymour, who 
had what was the event he had? He had another event at the uh, Waterfront Theatre over the weekend, charged people, I think, $25 a head, packed it out, filled the coffers, good kind of grassroots party stuff. He is... He was, I don't know, it was he who said, or, some, or someone in the party, maybe the president, saying they want 20 MPs. That's the goal. They've got 10 at the moment. And a couple of interesting policy lines, one about uh, quite, a, quite a smart uh, triangulation in terms of talking about paying teachers more, but obviously a more performance pay basis. And then the other the one. The TERF. The other one. The TERF. Yeah. Uh, that's, we're not getting into that. The Training Education Reward Fund. Oh, I fund. see. Oh, teacher, I see. Re- teacher Education Reward Fund. Only David Seymour could, like, offer to pay pe- teachers more while at the same time completely insulting teachers. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's it just, it's quite smart oppositioning. Then also there was the thing about electoral law reform, you know, which some of what, Andrew Guinness wrote a good piece for us. Some of it seems a little bit curly logic, but it's, it sort of has a, it's kind of, setting your own path a bit and rather than just being um, reacting to every you know the old the old hoary cliche of barking at every passing car is David Seymour do you think Annabelle doing a bit what um, Russell Norman and Mitsuri Ature did for a while when Labour was in the doldrums and starting to perform the function of the opposition well, that's the that's the problem with National being such a wreck at the moment is that it makes him look like the credible opposition leader. One thing I have to say, Ben, I reckon you've probably been surprised about this too, is how tidy he's managed to keep his his MPs. I think we were all expecting them to hair. roll into Parliament <laughs> and for the wheels to start to fall off. You do, know, do you someone wigging about out outside a restaurant mm. for a table and mm. or you know do, some, do you some sexting or something and nothing. They've all behaved themselves. Yeah, about a month. It was probably only about a month into the election, and there was a headline. You know. New ACT MP was deported from Fiji, and I was like, "Yeah, this chick's out. This train's never late." And then, then I re- <laughs> and then I re- read the story, and it said, "You know, Simon Court was um, barred from re-entering Fiji by the authorities after he repeatedly um, raised health and safety concerns at a <laughs> government building site." And, and and since then, yeah, the state of wonder has continued. That yeah. these these people seemingly plucked from random out of the New Zealand countryside um, have managed to basically stay without incident. Um, And that's, look, that's credit where it's due. That's the person who's the, I think, whip and deputy leader is um, my former colleague, Brooke Van Velden. Um, And folks, you've got to hand it to her. She's um, keeping them on a tight leash, maybe. They are um, All right. I think that's enough. Same. it were, there was thank you for joining us on this once in a generation <laughs> podcast. Thank you, Tina, especially, and also Annabelle and Ben. And we will return with more sizzling hot takes and probably a fortnight. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>